welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by behavioral ecologist and science communicator Andrew Katsis. Andrew, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad, James. I've just been enjoying the ASAP conference. Yes, we're sitting here looking at a, a lovely winery on Waiheke Island. <laughs> Overlooking the water. It's actually quite a nice place to do an interview. Yeah, it's... We're making we're making the conference sound really glamorous and like we're <laughs> living it up, but you know it's it's a nice little cozy conference. The few people now, I always finish these interviews by asking people what their Twitter profile is and where people might want to find out more. I'm going to start this interview asking you about your Twitter. If people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they go? Uh, they should. Uh Search for my handle, Andrew underscore Katsis, mm-hmm. uh, and that will take you right there. And I think this is an important place to start, because tell me about the one tweet that sent you off on a ridiculous adventure. Well, yes. Uh, I first started using Twitter's uh, personal Twitter account uh, in at the start of 2017. So I was relatively new to the Twitter game. I wasn't really sure what to do with it, and then suddenly... Uh, a, a hashtag started trending, so the hashtag was Bill Meet Science Twitter, and basically this started because a few Twitter scientists had gotten a bit upset that the big science communicators like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson often didn't have uh, actual living scientists on their shows. <laughs> so they started this hashtag Bill Meet Science Twitter, where thousands of people from around the world were tweeting at Bill Nye saying, "Hey, look, I'm a scientist. This is what I'm studying." I should be on your show. And so lots of people were tweeting this hashtag, and I thought, well, you know, I should I should get on board with this. I might get a few retweets. And uh, so I posted about my research, and within 24 hours, I had maybe 50 likes, and I was like, yes, this is amazing. I'm nailing <laughs> this. Viral as I'm ever going <laughs> to yes, go. I'm nailing this Twitter <laughs> thing. And I didn't really think much more of it. And then uh, a month or so later, completely out of the blue, I received a, an email, a, quite a mysterious email actually, from a, <laughs> a, a so-called television producer who uh, wanted to talk to me about being on their show. All right. And my first thought was, this, this sounds so much like a scam. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I took it to our PhD, super, uh, PhD coordinator and I said, oh, yeah, what do you think of this? Is this a scam? And he, and he said, well, call, call the number and see what happens. And it turns out it was a producer for uh, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Nye's uh, television program, his Netflix show called Bill Nye Saves the World. Mm. And they said to me, uh, We've saw your, we saw your tweet. We want you to be on the show to talk about your research. And I said, you mean like a, a satellite link, like an interview? And they said, no, no, no. We want to fly you to our studios in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, and I sort of thought about this for a second. And then I said, well, you know I'm in Australia, don't you? And, and and she said, yes, yes, I can tell that. <laughs> so about two months later, I was taken on a whirlwind uh, adventure to Los Angeles. And mm. they flew me to L.A. and I was there for three days. And I spent one of those days recovering from jet lag. <laughs> uh, and on the second day, my sh- a chauffeur picked me up from the hotel and I was driven to Sony Picture Studios where I appeared on Bill Nye Saves the World. To, uh, as the as that episode's Twitter scientist. So I got to spend three minutes spruiking my research on zebra finches, uh, and then I flew home again. 
So was he just going through everyone that had joined in on this hashtag, trying to find coolest, most exciting research to fly people over to be on the show? Uh, essentially, yes. Uh, the um, the segment was Bill Meet Science Twitter, and it was it was a direct response to this hashtag that had been trending online. Right. And so they picked uh, for the second and third season, they picked one Twitter scientist per episode to bring on the show, and and they had uh, three minutes in the spotlight, which I thought was really cool. I mean, Twitter is one of those things that I, I, it got explained to me. It's like a waterfall. No one's ever going to see every single drop of water that, <laughs> that <laughs> falls in there. But every now and again, people go and stick their head under it and, and get wet. And you've had this bizarre yes. situation where a single tweet <laughs> had made something incredible happen. I don't even know how they discovered my tweet because it wasn't shared that widely. Mm. It was retweeted 20 times or something. Um, but uh, I included I included an image, a few images in my tweet that always attracts attention. Do you remember what the tweet said? It was something like, "Hi, Bill Nye. I study how uh, how zebra finches call to their eggs in order to change their embryos' developments." It was something like that. Yeah. And then I had the hashtag at the end. Yeah. Uh, so it just goes to show. Um, you know, I was I was a bit Twitter skeptical mm. uh, when I joined. I thought, oh, you know, this isn't doing me all that much good. Yeah. You can waste a lot of time just scrolling through Twitter and posting things. Uh, but in the end, it was uh, it was uh, quite an amazing experience, and it all came about because of a tweet, bizarrely. On the off chance people listening don't know who Bill Nye is. Uh, Bill Nye is, uh, I basically, for Australian audiences, I would describe him as the American Dr. Carl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a science communicator. He had a children's science show in the 90s, I believe. Uh, and if... Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye the Science Guy, known. which had a very catchy theme tune, so I'm told. <laughs> and if you speak... <laughs> you feel free to sing it. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't actually know it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but if you speak to any anyone who grew up in the 90s in the US or I think Canada as well, mm. then he's like a household name for them. All right. Um, and so... He now hosts a, a, a Netflix show called Bill Nye Saves the World, which is kind of a hip, trendy science talk show. Mm. Uh, I would say it's mainly uh, aimed at younger people, so teenagers and people in their 20s, I suppose, um, who might not necessarily have an interest in science, but he's bringing these important issues mm. and um, talking about the science around it. And he can be quite politically confronting at the moment, so he's... Um, he did a segment on uh, John Oliver's show uh, last week, last week tonight, mm-hmm. where he was uh, talking about climate change action, how we're doing absolutely nothing about it. Yeah. And so he's occasionally attracted the ire of the conservative side of politics with his uh, controversial takes on science. It's so weird that that's considered controversial, though. <laughs> well, <to> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a sad, it's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? <laughs> So did you get the full-on celebrity treatment? You got flown on a plane over to fancy LA? Well, I got flown on a plane. I stayed in a, a fancy hotel. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't first class flight by any No, chance. it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't worth that. No. I'm sure Bill <laughs> Bill flies first class. Um, and got chauffeur driven to the uh, studios. They did my hair and makeup. They said they, could, they couldn't do much with my hair. That's what they told me. <laughs> But I actually walked in and I'd bought a, a new uh, business shirt for my mm. appearance because I wanted to look neat and, and professional. 
and it had it had patterns on it. It was a blue shirt, it had patterns. Oh no, patterns on camera. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but as soon as I walked into the studio, the first thing the producer said to me was, "No, you can't wear that," <laughs> and sent me off to wardrobe. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was treated very well, and we did one practice run, me uh, and Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, without an audience, and then they moved in the studio audience oh, of about, wow. about 200 people, I think. Okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we we recorded the episode, and it was all over far too quickly. Yeah, especially if it was only a three-minute segment yep. that you just record in front of a live audience and then get booted off again. <laughs> as soon as I, I finished talking about my research, and I haven't actually mentioned my research yet, so we'll get to that. We'll get to that, yeah. Uh, a producer swooped in and said, you know, was everything you said scientifically accurate? Yeah, in case they had to reshoot it. Yeah. And, and I, I was just in a daze. And <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't remember what I said. I think so. Who knows? Yeah, they, they work at a very different pace to us. Yes. Well, the um, seasons two and three were, consisted of 12 episodes in total. Yeah. And they filmed those 12 episodes in about 10 days. Yeah. And so they really do pack all that production time into, into a really tiny period. And then the post-production was, you know, it was nine months before my episode actually wound up on Netflix. Yeah. I'm sure your family's very proud. Uh, yeah, they were. <laughs> Is it like one of those, you've finally made it because you're on television moments? And <laughs> uh, well, it, my life didn't change as much as I thought it might. <laughs> you didn't become a celebrity? I only gained like 30 Twitter followers <laughs> after the episode went to air. So, uh, you know, and I, ha- I had one person who saw the episode email me and ask for more information. Yeah. But other than that, it wasn't. I wasn't being recognised on the street or anything yeah. like that. But it was a it was a really cool experience, and it allowed me to talk about my PhD research to a you know an audience of probably millions. I don't. They don't release viewing figures for Netflix, but yeah. uh, a lot of people would have seen that episode. And it is a good point the fact that this started from that meat science Twitter hashtag because yeah, there are these big, high profile science communicators. And there's not that many of them. Mm. It's like you said in Australia, you're either Dr. Carl or <laughs> Adam Spencer or or nobody. Yep. <laughs> like in America, it's the same with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye. And they they do all tend to be you know older men. There's not there's not much representation for you know the different races and the, yeah. and women women as well. Uh, or even just their scientific fields. Yeah. We uh, have this rant a lot. We we don't have a. We, I guess we don't have a Steve Irwin anymore. We don't have a Barefoot Bushman. We don't have a Ranger Stacy mm-hmm. to talk ecology and zoology. And yeah, that's true. I never really thought about that. Yeah, we need the next the, the next generation of David Attenborough to to step up and make yeah. their mark. Well, you kind of almost can't describe it as the next David Attenborough because <laughs> there there will be no other next David Attenborough. That's I true. know people talk about it, but. That he is what he is. Yep. <laughs> no one else, I think, can ever ever do that. But we can at least hope for someone new and fresh and interesting yeah, to, someone to fill a similar audience niche. Well, I don't, I don't know about your your origins in um, science, but yeah, David Attenborough was certainly the person yeah. who cr- produced the documentaries that really inspired a love of, of nature and wildlife and, and birds as well, because I was... Um, my the first life series that I saw mm. uh, was the Life of Birds, which came out in the late nineties, yeah. and that's what really got me interested in birds. And I, I'm quite sure that's what led me on a path towards studying birds as mm. a career. Oh yeah, no, I've said it many times on the podcast. I'm here because of 
David Attenborough, not because I you know, read the works of John <laughs> Gould and all that stuff, sort of highlights the importance of good science communicators for the future of science. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great that you can attribute your fascination with birds to that, because it's, it's a fascination that continues to this day with your own research. Yes, I, I think it's two-pronged, actually. David Attenborough was certainly an influence. Yeah. I also grew up on uh, on an emu farm uh, in the <laughs> <laughs> in the mid to late nineties. Right. Uh, this was a period when emu farming was the next big thing. Okay, uh, well, I didn't know this was a thing. We're oh, you, to you haven't heard about emu farming? Oh, okay. I knew I knew that there was emu farms. But I had no idea you grew up on one. Ah, well, Where was it? It was uh, in uh, a town called Gisborne, which is about forty minutes out northwest of Melbourne. Yep. And in the nineteen nineties, there were actually. Yeah, three in my area. There were three emu farms within a fifteen-minute drive. <laughs> so they were, this is actually when they're at their peak. Yeah. And the emus are harvested uh, mainly for their meat and for their oil, mm. which is which has always said to have aromatherapeutic uses. Yep. Uh, and sometimes also for the feathers and the and the leather that has uh, uses as well. And on our farm, at its peak, we had about two hundred emus running around. <laughs> and I was about five or six years old when we first got them and if you're five or six years old you're also about the same height as a one-year-old emu yeah and they like to uh they like to peck <laughs> so they would always go for the lips and the ears and that would always end in tears but uh, <laughs> that didn't that didn't, didn't turn you off of birds didn't that deter me from uh, from a love of birds yeah i did once <laughs> this is a a story that um my sister is still traumatized about but we had just um we had, I, was, I want to say, sacrifice the emus. We had just slaughtered the yes. emus <laughs> to process them. Uh, and my grandfather was helping out with that. And he mm. had an emu leg that was just spare. And he handed it to me. And he said, Andrew, you can, you can have this if you like. And I was so excited because I like, oh, this is this animal thing. I'm so excited. <laughs> and I, I wandered into the kitchen, waving around this emu leg, saying, Mom, what can I do with this? And my sister screamed and ran out of the room. <laughs> That's great. So, what happened to the emu farm in the end? Uh, it uh, it it wound down, yeah. uh, and my parents uh, started focusing uh, more on the uh, aromatherapeutic side of things rather than the actual emu farming, which mm. turned out to be uh, quite a bit of hard work. And mm. uh, emus uh, aren't the easiest birds to to maintain. Um, so, yeah, and and this. The bottom, I suppose, fell out of fell out of the industry towards the towards the late late nineties, early two thousand. Didn't know we had an emu industry golden era in the nineties. Yeah, 90s. we yeah we did. It was uh, it was uh, it was said to be the next big thing for their oils or for their oil or? and the meat. And the meat is actually really quite delicious. We we had our emus made into bratwurst sausages. Yeah, and it's quite a dark meat, so it's closer to beef than it is to chicken, for example. All right. And when uh, when we got rid of the emus, we had like a two year supply of emu meat that we used <laughs> to have quite regularly, and we we never got sick of it. <laughs> I've been to an emu farm out past Coonabarra Brain. Okay. I think so. That's the only one I know of. If you're ever passing the area, maybe you want to go in and, <laughs> and reminisce. Support support your local emu, emu farming industry. <laughs> I think it's due for a comeback any day now, I reckon. But the birds you're working on now are quite a bit smaller. Considerably smaller. Yes. So uh, my current study species for my PhD is the zebra finch. Mm -hmm. And the zebra finch is a small, arid-adapted songbird. 
uh, and it's found it's ranges across most of mainland Australia. So you're most likely to find them in the arid areas in the basically the red center of Australia. But um, you'll also find them further south. I know if you're near Melbourne, you can see them occasionally at the Western Treatment Plant mm-hmm. near Werribee. Uh, so people have probably seen them in pet shops as well, right? Yeah, when I when I mention zebra finches, a lot of people are familiar to them. Yeah, uh, because sort of gray they had them as a pet. Speckledy ones, yeah, yeah, and the um, you can tell the males from the females because the males have those bright red, orange, uh, so orange red uh, patches on their cheeks, mm-hmm. and they also have the stripes, the zebra-like stripes on the on their fronts as well. So mm-hmm. quite unmistakable between the sexes, mm-hmm. um, but they're also just really gorgeous little birds. They're very social and gregarious. So if you keep them apart from each other, they don't like it very much. And as soon as you put them back in the cage, they fly straight to their companions and start chirping about uh, what they've been doing. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I always, I have enjoyed working with them. Yeah. So what is it about your research into them that made you a celebrity for, for four days? Ah, yes. Uh, well, it all starts not with me, but with my PhD supervisors, mm-hmm. um, two researchers named uh, Melen Mariette and Kate Buchanan, who are based at Deakin University. And uh, a few years before I got to Deakin University, uh, Melen was uh, recording inside these nest boxes uh, where the captive, captive zebra finches were breeding. And uh, she noticed that they were producing... <laughs> she noticed that they were producing an unusual call that she'd never heard before. And it was a very simple, high-pitched call that kind of sounded like... And they repeated it five to six times per second. And she hadn't heard this thing before, and she wondered why they were producing it. And she eventually worked out that they were only producing this call when it was hot outside. So once it got above about 26 degrees Celsius, they would start to produce this call. And anything below that, they wouldn't call at all. So were they just making small talk? Jesus, hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the question uh, that she decided to ask. And yeah. her experiments um, showed that, yeah, they were only producing it when it was hot. And then she ran a, an incubation call experiment uh, where she took the eggs away from the nest after they'd been hatched, after they'd been laid, I should say, and placed them in an incubator, uh, in one of two incubators. And one incubator was played this special heat call. And the other incubator, um, those eggs heard a different call, which was just a normal contact call that the birds will be producing at any time, no matter what the temperature. Mm. Uh, And she found that the birds that heard this heat call inside the incubator, they actually altered their development. So when they were nestlings, they actually grew more slowly and ended up being smaller. So the fact that the call only happened inside the nest made them realize that it's probably not a call for other birds it might actually be to the the eggs themselves well that was the original discovery um the the first paper that was published only detected this not only in the nest but also in the final third of the incubation period mm-hmm. um however more recent work has suggested that they produce it even when there aren't any eggs so it seems oh. to be it seems to be a physiological response to the heat okay uh, so if you place a zebra finch into a into a room and then up the heat, then they'll start they'll start producing this call even if there aren't any eggs. Okay. Uh, but it looks like they may be more likely to produce it in the final stages of uh, of incubation, and that's when the embryos inside the egg 
uh, obviously hearing this call and they have a possibility to respond to it physiologically. Why do the embryos need to know when it's hot? Well, the theory that we're currently working with and are trying to test is that if it's hot outside, uh, the embryo doesn't necessarily know that because the embryo is being kept at a pretty constant 38 degrees mm -hmm. through the incubation behavior of its parents. Um, however, if you're hatching into a particularly hot environment, that's possibly a good thing to know in advance. So if you can alter your development to better cope with that heat, mm. that would be a good thing for your fitness and your survival. Yeah. So these experiments uh, suggested uh, that if you hear this heat call inside the egg, you grow to be smaller. And it's actually an interaction. So if you hear the heat call and end up in hot temperatures, it's those combined things that make you end up being smaller as a nestling. And if you're smaller, it means you have a, a larger uh, body surface to mass ratio, okay. which means you can lose heat more easily. Now that last bit isn't hasn't been formally tested yet, but that's the, that's the theory that we're working with. But it's interesting because we might conclude that smaller meant weaker and uh, not as high quality in offspring. Well, I guess uh, these things are all all relative. In normal yeah. conditions, then it may indeed be uh, better to be larger and and better able to respond to changes in, in the environment. But if it's particularly hot, then being able to lose heat uh, becomes an extra benefit. And maybe the benefits of, of losing heat overweigh the benefits of, of being smaller, of, of being larger, I should say. So we've got the bird equivalent of uh, very eager parents playing their kids' Mozart to <laughs> help their development. <laughs> yes. And I should say that in humans, there's no no evidence necessarily that playing your kids' Mozart will make them smarter. <laughs> what if I only play it when it's hot? What if I do? <laughs> but we, do we know anything about how sound affects development of an embryo? There's nothing known about the actual mechanism, what happens inside the egg? Um, there's, um, in songbirds, like the zebra finch, um, there's not much work that's been done on that. Mm. Um, we have people in our lab at Deakin who are working on that sort of thing. Um, in terms of other bird species, like chickens, for example, uh, chickens are precocial birds, which mm. means they hatch out of the egg at quite an advanced stage of development. So they'll hatch out of the egg and they're able to walk around. Uh, their eyes are open. They have a full set of feathers. Um, in, if you play uh, sound to a chicken embryo uh, in a few days before it hatches, then it actually can have an effect on their behavior. Um, for example, if you play a chicken uh, non-rhythmic noise, uh, uh, such as um, white noise or traffic noise or something like that, that will tend to impair the development of that chicken's brain. Um, and that will actually result in it being less able to spatially learn and spatially orientate itself after it hatches. Mm. Whereas if you play rhythmic sounds, such as music, um, you could try Mozart, but a lot of the studies I read were actually conducted in India, so it was sitar, it was sitar music <laughs> wow. that they played. And if you play music to these chicken embryos, it has the opposite effect. It tends to enhance the development of the brain mm. and make them uh, better able to spatially learn, at least in the early stages after hatching. I wonder if this is something the poultry industry is on top of, see if we can play them things to... Make them grow faster. <laughs> there has been has been some work on really? that actually, um, and it's I don't think necessarily playing the music to make them grow faster, but certainly limiting the amount of noise yeah. that they're exposed to because we know that playing them noise can actually affect their hatchability, so they're less likely to survive and hatch out of the egg. Okay, so is that why they have them in sort of isolated incubation? 
boxes yes. as opposed to in with all the other live chickens. I think that would be one of the reasons why you do that. Also, uh, chickens, uh, some precocial species actually click. Uh, when they're inside the egg, they'll click to each other. So they'll produce this clicking sound, which I think is caused by um, respiration. So it's like fluids moving as they respire. Uh, and it causes a clicking sound. And they click at different rates depending on how far developed they are inside the egg. And that can actually synchronize the brood. So if you hear a, if you're, you're slightly behind in your development and there's a, a brood mate who's clicking at a different rate to you, that can actually speed up your development so you start to hatch at the same time. We often think life for birds would begin when they hatch out of their egg, but it begins a lot before that. Absolutely. I mean, it, traditionally, we've always thought that, you know, learning begins at, at birth or at hatching. But really, that period, especially in around the final third of incubation or gestation, if you're a, if you're a human, that's really when the education starts and you start taking in this information and you can potentially use it after you hatch or after you're born um, to make the right decisions as a as a baby yeah all right it's probably good though that there's limited evidence for this in people because imagine the amount of <laughs> products people will be trying to sell to oh there's stick headphones on your pregnant belly and see what happens those things <laughs> they do exist actually <laughs> they're called belly I keep saying all these ludicrous things <laughs> that surely couldn't be happening and you keep turning around and going oh yeah i know never thing never underestimate the enthusiasm of a of a, of of parents <laughs> uh, they're called belly buds i think <laughs> and i don't want to advertise them because i did i did interview a, a researcher for an article i wrote yeah. uh, about prenatal learning in humans and her name is christine moon and she's really one of the experts about what uh, what babies or human fetuses can hear inside the womb okay and I asked her about this uh, via email, and she basically said, yeah, there's no evidence that they work, and if anything, you could actually do damage to the fetus because, you know, you don't know. The fetus has sleep-wake cycles mm. inside the womb, uh, and you don't know if you're waking it up with your Mozart w that you're playing directly. <laughs> and also, um, because sound obviously does enter the womb if you place a speaker on there, uh, on your belly, um, you don't know how the sound is being distorted and amplified in there mm. and so you can actually do potentially do damage to the fetus's hearing just yeah. by playing music there so uh, she said that you 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 should feel welcome to sing and talk to your baby inside the womb uh, but you shouldn't play music directly to it where was this article written for uh this is written for lateral magazine which is a, an online science magazine uh written by early career scientists and mm. uh, i'm I'm life science editor for the magazine. So You're also one of the founders of this magazine, right? Yes, it was founded all the way back in 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, uh, a project of a bunch of former Melbourne University science communication students mm. who were so excited about sharing science. And so we um, managed to crowdfund $12,000 to launch this magazine. Mm. And basically, the idea behind it is to give a platform for early career scientists to write about their research or to write about their areas of interest. And if uh, they want to branch into science journalism, for example, this is a, a very supportive um, magazine that will work with them to get the article edited and published. And, and we always, I mean, I edit the life science section and there are other sections as well. So physics and chemistry and so forth. Mm. 
And it, they're always really interesting articles, and we commission artwork as well, which really makes the articles. <laughs> yeah, it harks back to this idea we had before that we have these big, high-profile science communicators mm -hmm. doing a lot of the science communicating. It'll be great to hear more from actual scientists, which I guess I'm trying to do with a podcast, yes. <laughs> but you're doing with getting the scientists to write things that would normally be written by journalists. And even if a scientist you know, isn't interested in becoming a, journal, a science journalist, mm. It's still a g amazing skill to have to be able to write, um, write about your work in a way that's targeted towards a general audience, because mm. um, a lot of uh, a lot of scientists don't quite know how to communicate with the public. I mean, I say that, but we've been at this ASAB conference here, and a lot of the talks have been really accessible and really entertaining. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that's because this is very much a student-heavy conference, mm. and. And I think that gives me hope that the next generation of scientists are actually taking on board the idea that science communication is so important and actually putting effort into it. Mm. I feel like lots of people do care about this stuff. <laughs> and we sit and talk about it and say, wouldn't it be great if this was a thing? <laughs> wouldn't it be great if someone started this? What does it take for a bunch of you guys to go, oh, no, we'll just we'll do it ourselves. We'll start our own magazine. Yeah. Um, it was... It was about seven months in the making, this mm. magazine. So we, we had a few tentative early meetings and we were throwing around ideas for the name of the magazine. Mm. Um, and my my first idea was immediately rejected. Which was? <laughs> <Go on. laughs> well, it's embarrassing now. It was like, um, it was Chiasma. Oh. And I think because Chiasma, I don't know my, I don't know my, cell division as well as I could. I think it's <laughs> a part of the cell where, it's like, isn't that like telomeres? Is uh, it where the telomeres yeah. join? Yeah, sure. Let's oh, go no, no, no. Like the chromosome. <laughs> it's a bit where the chromosome... I Don't fact check me on this. It's not my field. <laughs> but I looked it up and it was something, some intersection of the chromosome. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, this magazine is about the, uh, the intersection of science and everything. Yeah. Uh, and I, I pitched this idea and uh, Jack Scanlon, who was our editor-in-chief at the time, he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but then he came up with lateral, which I think was uh, followed followed the same idea of you know this is where science mm. um, science meets all these other important uh, ideas that have to do with politics and society mm. and you know how the world works essentially because every any topic you can think about. You know that you can bring science into it, really. Yeah, yeah, and I think you should bring science into it. Yeah. So, do you go commissioning articles, or do you get people to pitch ideas to you? Uh, most of our articles are pitched to us. Mm -hmm. um, so, if you go to the uh, website lateralmag.com, mm -hmm. um, you can see our archive of material and some information on potentially pitching to us. And if you're targeting early career scientists, who's who's eligible? Um, we don't really have a very strict criteria. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyone who hasn't, I mean, most of our writers tend to be masters or PhD students. Mm -hmm. um, but we've also had people who are you know, established researchers, but haven't actually written popular science before. Mm -hmm. And so we would call them, you know, early career science writers, I suppose. Yeah. And if they want to pitch us a story, then... Um, um, then we're happy to receive it. We sometimes receive pitches from professional freelance journalists mm -hmm. uh, who pitch these amazing ideas. And then when we tell them our, uh, what we pay for articles, they, <laughs> they immediately balk at our, at our pay rates. Uh, so at the moment, we pay $50 for a feature article and $30 for a, uh, for a 
general article, which is a shorter one. But at least you're paying, right? Yeah, that's the principle. 99% of science communication is done pro bono. We don't, ha- we don't have that much money, but that was one of the things that we were quite set on, that we wanted to be able to we pay our contributors mm. at least some token amount to, yeah. to ensure that you know we weren't taking their, their yeah. contribution for granted. When you look at something like The Conversation, which is this huge, big media outlet now, mm-hmm. don't pay any of their writers. No, they don't. And I mean, I, I love the, the Conversation. I think they do a wonderful job. Mm. Um, Combining the academic side of things with, yeah. with the journalism side, um, but you know they have a budget in in the millions, mm. um, which I think they often have to fight for because governments can pull, pull funding and universities yeah. pull funding. Uh, but yeah, all the all the academics, thousands of academics a year probably, mm. um, are paid absolutely nothing. Well. I mean, first of all, scientists are not paid for writing their own scientific articles. That's well, that's a that's a, that's a broader <laughs> problem, isn't it? But then the <laughs> argument about that is, it's assumed that while writing these articles is part of the scientist day job, so they're already getting paid by the universities. But I think most of the the most productive scientists are these early career scientists, postgraduate students that more often than not aren't getting paid Mm. is they're between jobs or writing these papers on the weekends. So for you guys to put your foot down and say, we have to give whatever money we can to support these people is amazing. Yeah. I mean, we've, uh, we've had to seek out money from uh, different sources. So we've done some crowdfunding. We did get a a $19,000 grant from the university of Melbourne. Mm. Um, at the moment, um, we are running a bit, running a bit low on uh, on funding. So the magazine is in a, a slight hiatus mm. while we chase a few other grant opportunities. Um, but is it something people can subscribe to and purchase? Um, not purchase, but certainly you can you can go to the magazine website. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read our archive of articles. Um, if you want to pitch a life science story, mm-hmm. still pitch it to me. I'm still answering emails and commissioning. commissioning so it's work. all freely available. Absolutely. Online. Um, and. Uh, we have, I think, 31 issues, mm-hmm. uh, and we started off with monthly issues. We're now in, uh, we were, then we went to two monthly when yeah. that became a bit too much work. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, we've got hundreds of articles at this stage, mm. and we've racked up more than a quarter of a million views. So it's been a, a really exciting success, and it just goes to show that there is a market for yeah. early career scientists to uh, to write about their work and for people to read about it. What about science artists if they're interesting in? interested in contributing should they get in touch up oh, they absolutely should mm-hmm. uh, we have a um, we have a, a group of regulars who often do our feature art but you know we're always welcome to new contributors as well all right so if people want to contribute or support lateral mag where can they find out more oh, well they can go to lateralmag.com which is mm-hmm. our website you can also uh, follow us on Twitter and uh, Facebook and just and search for lateral mag and that will get you there and your Twitter handle again is Andrew underscore Katsis. All right. Thanks so much for chatting, Andrew. No worries. I can hear fun. the next conference talk just about to start, so we should probably get back to it. <laughs> yeah, we probably should. All right. All right. Have a great day. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Follow us on social media at Institute Science. And again, if you're interested in supporting Lateral Mag, go ahead and do that. If you want to support Institute Science, check us out on patreon.com slash Institute Science. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.